Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Uh, yeah, so maybe I start out with a little bit of more personal introduction myself. Um, so, um, so I grew up uh, a Christian from childhood. Um, joined the Catholic Church about 16 years ago, and uh, St. Thomas Aquinas was a big influence. So it's sort of appropriate that I teach at the Thomas Institute. Um, we actually ran, ac- ran across Thomas in Toulouse uh, about 30 years ago. I was doing a conference there on the, it was philosophical. It was, Formal semantics and natural language, the sort of stuff I did when I was starting out. Uh, I had no idea. I was just wandering around town, found this church, and thought, interesting, went in, there was a shrine, it was this, it was Thomas. And so I spent a couple hours with him there, just praying. And ever since then, it's like he's been following me around all the time. <laughs> he's definitely been praying for me. Uh, and so, uh, so I've been working on this sort of issue since 97. I think that was my first paper that I did on, on, on groups of God's existence. You guys, it's like a long time ago. It seems like yesterday to me, but uh, before you were born. Uh, and uh, um, yeah, but you know, again, like most people in philosophy, when I was when I was taught philosophy in, in the secular world, uh, you know, we jump from from Aristotle to Descartes, and uh, you, you might get a word or two in there about medieval stuff, but not much. And so I, I taught I taught logic a lot back in those days. So and I like I like to use logic in real life arguments. So I thought, well, let's find some real life arguments and do some logic. So there's five ways, you know, let's look at those. And, uh, and so I did, this was back in the early ni- mid 90s. And I looked at these arguments, I thought, hmm, it's actually a lot more interesting than I thought. You know, I, when I was an undergrad, you were, you know, again, giving like five minutes in five ways and why they're all wrong. <laughs> and I've been doing some work on causation, uh, you know, formal theories of causation. And then looking at my thing, it's actually really interesting. And so that led to this paper in 97. And, uh, and since then, there's been a kind of a, Boomlet in academic philosophy on this sort of subject, and it's kind of like it's accelerating a bit, as you'll see. I've got a slide coming up here. Um, uh, so yeah, anyway, this is an overview. I'm going to cram a bunch of arguments in here, <laughs> so it's going to be a little superficial in a sense, uh, kind of the highlights. Uh, but then during our discussion time, we can dig into some more detail if you like. Uh, so I'm going to run through four or five arguments actually. Um, the Thomistic argument that uh, that whatever is contingent or natural has to have a causal explanation, which gives us to a first cause and then cause the cause of everything else. Uh, the Kalam argument that time had to have a beginning, which Thomas actually wasn't a fan of, but uh, I think there are new versions of it that had he known about them, he would have liked, <laughs> I think, I'll argue. Uh, and, uh, and then the scientific evidence, which I'll mention very briefly, hardly at all, actually, <laughs> but I think mostly just to say that um, if you come to the scientific evidence having this philosophical foundation, it's now it's, it becomes really easy, right? So, so what you find is people who deal with the science stuff who are skeptics, they're able to dismiss it because basically they said they say God is not a plausible hypothesis. We're not going to consider it, right? But if you if you provide a philosophical foundation, look, there's at least reason to think, say seriously God is causing the universe. Then you come to fine tuning it's like, okay, <laughs> I mean at that point it's, it's like it's, it becomes a, a no-brainer really that you have to introduce something like God is the cause. So I'll mention that a bit. So again, uh, I'm going to talk about mostly, it's actually mostly, I should say, just way too, really, this talk. Um, I've been doing some more work, actually, on ways one and three recently. 
one of my colleagues at UT Austin and I, uh, Dan Bonnevac, um, we're working on a we're on a new book on five ways. Actually. So uh, it's been really interesting. Actually, I, I think that I think we've got a better take on five ways than anybody else so far. So <laughs> well, you know, wait a couple of years when that comes out, we'll clear all that up. But uh, but anyway, uh, my friend Alex Bruce at the Baylor, just up the road from us, uh, is doing some great work on this. Um, Back in 2010, he wrote a book on the principle of sufficient reason, which I'll talk about in a bit. Uh, there's another fellow out in California. Do you know Josh? Um, he's, at, uh, he's at um, Azusa, I think, isn't he? Yeah. Um, and uh, he and Proust have written a book in 2018. And then, real recently, Proust has another book on infinity causation paradox, which is the Kalam kind of related stuff. And then some of my own work. Um, Proust and I have published an article in Full Studies in 2020. Which I'm very proud of, actually. So, you know, if you're interested in this stuff, you should take a look at that. So, anyway, a lot of stuff coming out. This is just, again, this is just kind of the tip of the iceberg. There's actually a lot of other stuff I could mention on this on this subject. So, it's been it's been kind of gathering steam, I think, in recent years. Um, hoping we get to a point where there's just so much, you know, that the, my skeptical colleagues can't ignore it anymore. They actually start dealing with this. And uh, I think we're pretty close to that, actually. So, uh, so the main argument on the talk, to start with, anyway is this Thomistic argument, but it's really an argument that a long history goes way back before Thomas. Um, at least Aristotle, maybe even Plato, maybe even the Presopatics, you would argue. Um, and, and really, it's been accepted by philosophers in at least six different traditions. Um, you know, obviously the Greek and Roman, Jewish, Christian, Muslim. And actually, I have a friend at UT Austin who's done work on, on 10th century Indian philosophy. And I think this is independent, but it's very similar, actually, to the Thomistic argument. And of course, the early modern European people like Leibniz and Newton and Clark and folks like that. So, so you know, it's a, it's a multicultural argument. <laughs> it's an argument that appeals to people in lots of different contexts. Um, and it's been developing over 2,500 years. But at the same time, as I just mentioned, it's a very current argument, right? I mean, it's, people are working on this very intensively as we speak. Right? So it's, a, it's something to take, take seriously. So anyway, um, I like to focus on the um, epistemological question. Right? What, what do we know? How do we know it, right? So, you know, here's a hand, right? Uh, how do I know there's a hand with five fingers? Right? How do we know that? Um, and I want to say, if you can know it, you can also know that God exists. Pretty simple steps, right? <laughs> here's a hand, God exists. We'll sort of explain how that goes. Um, so, um, so your knowledge of your hand and other people's hands too, right, is a case of what we call empirical knowledge, right? You don't sort of just think deep thoughts and know you have a hand. You have to actually see it and feel it and hear it and so on, right? And uh, so we know it by observation, we know it by memory, even if I'm not looking at hands right now, I can remember having seen hands. And uh, we know it by the testimony of others. You know, have you ever seen a hand? <laughs> yes, okay. Uh, and we can infer it sometimes from scientific and historical reasoning, right? So even if I'd never seen a hand or heard about them, I could maybe infer it from uh, historical records and so on. So empirical knowledge depends on what we call causality, it's the cause and effect. Um, everything that we know empirically, we know because it's connected to something in the external world, so to speak, or the real world, by a series of a chain of causes and effects. Right? Sensory perception, right? Um, there's a light, it reflects off a surface, travels through the medium, gets the retina, all those are causal transactions, right? Memory, presumably, involves some event, maybe some kind of trace in your brain, that trace in your brain affects your thinking now, and it's a chain of cause and effect. Testimony, right? One person talks to another, causal interaction, right, and so on. Uh, obviously, most, almost all our scientific and historical reasoning 
involves reasoning from causes to effects or effects to causes, right? We observe things, we infer a cause, or we, we observe causes, we infer effects based on those causes. So no causality, no empirical knowledge. Right? That's, that's the basic idea. Um, um, so here's the problem for the skeptic, right? Here's the hand, electromagnetic radiation, right? The eye, the brain, right? I know there's the hand, right? If any one of these steps could occur without a cause, right, we've got problems, right? Because if I can think there's a hand, and that thought there's a hand just popped into existence without a cause, then that could be happening all the time, right? So I think right now there's a hand, right? But maybe that thought there's a hand has nothing to do with the hand out in reality, just popped into existence without a cause, right? Or maybe the photons just came into existence without a cause and had no connection to a hand in the external reality, right? So, um, so without causation, empirical knowledge is impossible. So in order to know, know that you know, know that you have empirical knowledge, you have to know there's causation in the world, right? You have to know that things have causes, right? But how does that work, right? Well, what's the scope of causation? Um, in order for us to have empirical knowledge, we've got to have confidence that everything in the chain of causation that's involved in empirical knowledge has a cause. We have to know that brain events have causes, that retinal stimulations have causes, that photons streaming through the medium have causes, the reflections of light off surfaces have causes, and so on, right? Um, this are, that's a lot of different things, right? Those aren't very similar, right? Uh, so um, it, it looks as though um, uh, if it were possible that any of these things could happen without a cause, any of those sorts of things could happen without a cause, it could happen all the time, right? In a completely unpredictable and, and, and inscrutable way, right? Which means that we have to take seriously the possibility that we're sort of Boltzmann brains or Boltzmann cells, right? So, Boltzmann was a statistician. I won't go into all the details, but basically the thought is, if things could happen without a cause, then a brain could just appear in a vacuum out in deep space somewhere, right? Just like my brain now. Or if you're not a physicalist, which I'm not, a self could appear right? in, in, the, in, the, in deep space, thinking that it's, it's Rob Coons living in, you know, visiting North Carolina and giving a talk at philosophy. But in fact, it's just a brain that's just popped into existence out of nowhere in deep space, right? Um, and so, um, in fact, really possible, and there's no way to predict whether it could or whether it did or didn't happen on any particular occasion. I have to take seriously, that's me right now, right? How could I know that I'm not the Boltzmann brain, right? So if I know that I'm not a Boltzmann brain, right? I know that, in fact, my thoughts have causes. It must be because I have implicitly some kind of knowledge, right, that things have causes. And not just particular things, but pretty much everything, right? Things in general have to have a cause. Now, um, this universal causality has to be self-evident too, right? Because if I had this, if I had to rely on empirical evidence to figure out which things have causes and which things don't, I'd be reasoning in a circle, right? Because in order to have empirical knowledge, I've got to presuppose causality, right? General causality. And if I have to figure out that causality is real and when it happens on the basis of empirical knowledge, uh, there'd be a kind of vicious circularity involved in that. So knowledge really requires a kind of self-evident principle of reason that tells us that things have causes, right? Independent of empirical knowledge itself. So empirical knowledge itself rests in a way on a non-empirical foundation. Lots of philosophers have made this argument, of course. <laughs> so I'm not unique in, in making that particular argument. Now, there's one sort of thing that we can consider not having a cause that won't cause any problems for us. And that would be something that's obviously uncausable, right? 
So it would be no surprise if I told you, well, look, it's an obviously uncausable hypothesis. Okay, <laughs> no problem, right? Uh, what about my brain state? Is that obviously uncausable? No. What about protons in the environment? Is that obviously uncausable? No. Protons reflecting on the surface, obviously uncausable? No. Right? So, so, um, so this, this kind of principle will, will, meet the, will meet the need, right? It will give us the kind of broad generality we need, while admitting, of course, there may be an exception, namely anything that's obviously, self-evidently, uncausable, right? That would be the one sort of thing that wouldn't have to have a cause. So, um, so that's, uh, let's say that a natural thing is anything that's not obviously uncausable, right? A supernatural thing would be something that's obviously uncausable, right? So we can, we can t uh, my argument is that reason can tell us with certainty that every natural thing has to have a cause. Everything that's not obviously uncausable has to have a cause, right? Um, so, right. So, um, now this, this is applied just to individual things? I don't think so. I think this applies to what we call in, in philosophy pluralities of things, right? So, for instance, uh, did the Civil War have a cause or some causes? Presumably, yes, right? The Civil War isn't a single fact, some complex set of facts, right? And all of them collectively had some causes, right? So, uh, so I would argue not just by natural thing here, I mean every natural thing or plurality of natural things, right? Uh, we'll have a cause, pointly I have a cause. Right? So take the plurality of all the natural things there are. Right? That's a plurality of natural things, right? It's not obviously uncausable. So the principle should apply to it. So the totality of all the natural things should have a cause. Now could that, that also be a natural thing? Well, no, because any natural thing would be part of that, right? would be a member of that totality of natural causes, and nothing can cause itself. So if something were it's a natural cause, natural thing were a cause of all the natural things, it would be causing itself, and that would be a vicious superiority thing. So therefore, the cause of the totality of natural things must be something non-natural, supernatural, and that's God. Right? So again, pretty simple argument, right? <laughs> Causality, everything natural thing has a cause. There's no circular causation. Therefore, there must be some uncausable thing out there that's the cause of everything, everything natural, right? And that's what we call God. Now I get into a bit, okay, wait a minute, how do you get from that to God? Patience, we'll get to that in a minute. Um, now, a second proof, this is the, uh, the Kalam argument. This is an argument that actually was probably created by a guy named John Philoponus, who's a Syrian Christian philosopher in the, correct me if I'm wrong, fifth century, something like that, fifth, sixth, sixth century, something like that. But it gets picked up then by the Muslim philosophers, and, and then also later by Bonaventure and others. Thomas is not a fan of it, um, and rightly so, because I think the argument in his day, was not really up to his standards. <laughs> he had very high standards. Um, but I think that it's actually a pretty good argument nowadays. Um, so it's going to be a very simple argument of the universe, where now I'm going to say, I'm going to switch gears a little bit and talk about the totality of things that are in time, or the things that have, have causes. That totality had a beginning in time. Everything that had a beginning had a cause. Therefore, the universe had to have a cause. And that cause didn't God. So, um, so obviously, now this second principle is pretty plausible, I think, actually. I'm not going to give much more defense to it, given what I've said already. If something begins to exist, we expect a cause. Right? We don't expect, expect anything to pop into existence with no, with no cause. So the, obviously, the really interesting question is the first one. Why I think the universe had to have a beginning? Why not a, why not a universe without a beginning that has anything in the past? Um, this is where the Kalam stuff comes in. So I like this essay by Jose Benedetti. I think he's still alive, actually. Maybe, maybe he's way up there now. <laughs> he's at Syracuse. 
uh, when he wrote a book in the 64 called Infinity in the same metaphysics, um, which uh, Proust's book is kind of built on in lots of ways. And it's got this really interesting thought experiment called the Grim Reaper experiment. So here's the experiment. You've got um, Fred, a hapless victim, who's going to be killed, supposedly. He faces an infinite number of Grim Reapers right, who are going to kill him. Um, but they're arranged in such a way that um, the Grim Reaper number one is going to wait until a minute after midnight. If, if Fred's still alive, Grim Reaper number one will kill him okay, at that time. If he's already dead, he'll do nothing. Grim Reaper 2 is going to have a deadline of 30 seconds after midnight, before that. Right? So Grim Reaper 2 will check it 30 seconds after midnight is Fred alive if he is close and otherwise do nothing. 3, 15 seconds. 4, 7.5 seconds. Right? Get the idea. There's an infinite number. So there's no first Grim Reaper in, in the temporal sense. Right? There's nothing at midnight. Right? Any finite amount of time after midnight, you've already got past an infinite number of Grim Reapers. Right? Uh, and so now the question is, does Fred survive? And if, if not, why not, right? Um, well, it seems pretty clear that he can't survive, right? Because if he managed to get to 1201, one will kill him. So he's definitely dead at 1201, right? So which Grim Reaper kills him, right? If you say it's Grim Reaper 2, I say, no, it can't be 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, right? You got past all those. Yeah, okay, Grim Reaper, a billion. Billion 1, billion 2, billion 3, right? So no matter how big a number you pick, 2 to the Google Plex, or you know, some huge number, 2 to the Google Plex, 1, plus 2, plus 3, plus 4, right? So, so it's impossible for any Grim Reaper to kill him, right? And so we might draw from that conclusion, right, that there's something wrong about the setup, right? But what's wrong about it? I mean, is it possible for Grim Reapers to kill people? Sure, right? It's we aside and tell them to kill somebody at a certain time, right? That's not the problem. So the problem with the scenario is the infinity of, of the Grim Reapers, right? So what does this have to do with Kalam argument? Well, we just have to tweak the argument a little bit. Uh, to get a Kalam-style argument. So now, now forget Fred, actually, it doesn't matter. We're just going to have Grim Reaper 1, who does something at 1 BC, right? Basically, he, he looks at a piece of paper, and if the piece of paper is still blank, he writes, Grim Reaper 1 will sentence Fred to death, and hands it in, right? If it's already got a number on it, he does nothing. Right? Grim Reaper 2, same thing. It's a piece of paper, if it's blank, he writes Grim Reaper 2. If, if it's already got something on it, he passes it on. 3, same thing, right? This goes, this goes back all the way into an infinite past. So again, at 1 AD, <laughs> does the piece of paper have a number on it? Well, yeah, it has to, right? Because we described it in such a way that if, if for some weird reason it were blank, at 1, at 1 BC, 1 will write the number 1 on it, right? So it's going to be at least a number on it. What number? Contradiction again. 7? No. What about 8, 9, 10? 8? A billion? No. Really 1, 2, and so on. So, on. so you very quickly get a contradiction right, from this. So, um, and I, I've dealt with this on people on the web and stuff. I say, contradiction, see who's you're wrong. You've got a contradiction. That's the whole point. It's, not, it's a feature, not a bug, right? It's, a, it's what we call a reductive ad absurdum, right? That is, we assume an infinite past is possible. Individual Grim Reapers are possible. If an infinite past is possible, infinite and individual Grim Reapers are possible, then this scenario is possible, right? The scenario is not possible, right? Because of a contradiction. Therefore, one of those premises has got to be false. Right? So either Grim Reapers are just impossible, they aren't, very easy to do this, this one especially, hand me a piece of paper or a number on it. <laughs> so that's, that's obviously possible, right? Um, there's a thing that we're using here, there's really just three premises in this argument, right? Possible to the Grim Reaper, no question. The infinity of the past, that's the issue, right? And thirdly, this, this transition that says, if an infinite past is possible and a particular scenario is possible, then there should be a possible world where you fit that scenario into the 
That's called a patchwork principle. So the idea is that the infinite past gives you this kind of this kind of framework, right? And then you got a patch, and you just put the patch into the framework, right? Wherever there's a hole, and you end up with a quilt. And so if the if if framework is possible and the patch is possible, you should get a quilt. But you don't get a quilt. <laughs> you get a you contradiction, you try to build the quilt. Therefore, the framework is wrong. That's the idea, right? An infinite patch is impossible. I think it's pretty convincing, right, uh, to me. I think there's uh, more things could be said about it, but it's a, it's a serious problem. Uh, so we talked about that already. Um, so Rebecca, you have to again. Don't tell me, Coons, you've made a contradiction. Yes, I made a contradiction, that's my point, right? Uh, and it, it's because hypothesis, infinite past is possible. Result, contradiction, right? Therefore, infinite past is not possible. You understand the logic of that, right? Very ancient sort of style of argument that uh, people on the web do not understand this, right? <laughs> you know, I keep uh, going over and over again. Um, so, um, so anyway, there's some other arguments you could try to give here, right? Um, you know, so there's maybe a third argument here, really, which is suppose that the column argument is wrong, right? And suppose that the Proust argument is wrong, right? Um, so that's sorry, the Thomas argument is wrong. So you have an infinite regress of causes, right? But still, you can always ask, doesn't that infinite regress have a cause? And, and Proust and, and uh, Gale gave this argument back in the 80s, like in the 90s, I guess. Um, you have a, a cannonball that's shot from a cannon, right? And it's plausible to think that, so it goes from the cannon to the castle, right? So it's plausible to think that the last half the cannonball's path is sort of caused by the first half, right? Or let's say the second quarter, right? And the second quarter is sort of caused by an eighth before it, and the eighth is caused by a sixteenth before it, and so on. So you can, you can sort of construct an infinite regress there, right? And nobody would say, so nobody had to shoot the cannonball, right? Because there's a cause of every step, right? Why did it do this, this part? Why did it do that, this part? And so on, right? No, you'd still want to say, yeah, the whole path has to have a cause. I don't care if you break it down into a number of parts. You still have to have a cause of the whole thing. So even if even if there were an infinite past with an infinite number of causes, you'd still want to know what the cause of the whole thing, right? As, as far as it's causable in the first place. Okay. So that's that's an argument that comes up from Ibn Sina, Dunscotus, and, and Leibniz as well. I think it's also a good argument. Um, okay. So um, so the first cause is going to be obviously uncausable. It's the sort of thing that couldn't possibly be evidence for something deeper, because nothing could else really cause it. So, so let's think about that. What would it mean for something to be obviously uncausable? Right? What, what characteristics can we derive from that? Right? What, do we, what do we know about causable things? Right? Uh, causable things are always variable and changeable. Changing, I suppose. So, uh, so it seems like it seems like it's very plausible to go that go the other way and say, okay, so if something's Changeable and variable and constant, then it's plausible. That seems plausible. Right? Uh, those are the characteristics kind of things we attribute causes to. So that suggests that if something's uncausable, it's going to have to be non-variable, constant, right? Unchanging, right? And I would say unchangeable, right? Because if it's, if it's if it's just unchanging but changeable, then we could ask, well, what caused it not to change, right? Whereas if it's unchangeable, right, in itself, then there's no Cause for no call for a causative cause, right? So now we've got something that's that's unchangeable, right? As this uncausable first cause, um, and if it's um, if it's uncausable, um, I would argue. Secondly, not only is it unchangeable, it's also going to be infinite in some respect. So 
But here I'm appealing to a principle that you find in Einstein and in Stephen Weinberg, one of my former colleagues passed on a few years ago in, in physics, atheists, so not, no special pleading here. Uh, the principle is that in physics, when we find something that is a finite constant, some kind, right? Physicists always want to try to find some sort of explanation for it, right? It seems like that calls for an explanation. Why is time, why does light move at this particular speed? Why is the electron exactly this way, not some other mass, and so on, right? Um, and so they're always looking for some, some explanation for those things. And I think that's very plausible, right? That where something has a finite measure, right? we ask, there's got to be some cause why it has that measure, not some slightly more, slightly less measure, right? Why not just a tiny bit, you know, 1%, half a percent more or less, right? So, so if that's right, I think that's a very plausible intuition, then something that's uncausable should be metrically isolated, right? It shouldn't have anything near it, right? Uh, so it'll have to be either zero or infinity, basically, in every respect, right? So if it has power, it's better to have infinite power. If it's got knowledge, it should have unbounded power, right? If it's got uh, um, life, it should be un unlimited life, and so on, right? All very plausible. Um, and then finally, um, if, it's, if it's infinite like that, then you might argue that it's, it's sort of existence Pure existence, existence that's unbounded in any way, right? So, so this is this is where we get into really deep waters, right? So again, I'll just give you kind of a taste of where, where this would go. Um, you might think that to exist is no big deal. Actually, everything exists, right? I exist, you exist, the fly exists, the bean exists, the electron exists, and so on. So you might think it's kind of a minimal thing, but that's probably the wrong way to look at it. Actually, what you should think about instead is you should say, well, I exist, and the bean exists. But the bean exists under a much more severe set of constraints than I have, right? It's limited in ways that I'm not limited. Right? So if existence itself were limited, right? So existence itself is so limited that you couldn't be intelligent and exist, you would not could exist, right? Because obviously we're intelligent, right? And so, uh, so it looks as though, then, if, if it's possible for a being to be infinite, then existence itself must be unlimited, right? So that it's possible for there to be this infinite being. You and I are not, we're not some minimal existence plus some stuff. We're absolute existence minus stuff, right? Based, based on restrictions and limitations of various kinds. And therefore, the uncausable thing would be a thing that has existence with no limitations. Absolute, pure, un, unvarnished existence, right? And you can see why it wouldn't have, have, wouldn't have a cause, right? Because it's so much greater than everything else, right? That it couldn't be caused by anything else, right? This is actually Scotus's argument. Yeah. Um, in, in that theoretical thought experiment, um, if you do have, let's say, in, a, in an empty box, you have thousands of particles, all yeah. that are stationary. In that thought experiment, eventually, if they're all moving, one particle had to start moving at some point. Yes. In the beginning. Right. right? And then it collided with something else, and then it started chain reaction. Right. What we're saying is the first particle, for it to move, there cannot be a cause. Right. So this goes back to the Kalam argument, right? So if, if there was some kind of first movement, right, then um, then it would have to have a cause. Because anything that begins has to have a cause. So if, if, if it's motion begins, it has to have a cause. And the idea is that its cause then would have to be something outside of the universe, outside of time. 
So not something that's itself moving around, like has some kind of specific characteristic. So, but theoretically it is possible to have something that is uncausal. Well, the big argument here is that there has to be something that's uncausal. Right, right. So, so we are agreeing so that it's gotta it's be, and it's gotta be obviously uncausal, right? Then why can't it be the first particle that moves? Right, why can't that be right, the because look, we, we know that particles are caused to move all the time, right? That's easy. So if we've got this particle back at the beginning, right? Is it causable? Well, sure, because it's a particle. Movement of a particle, we know that's causable. It's a sort of obviously causable thing, right? And the whole point of the argument is it gets us to something that's obviously uncausable. That's not a, that's not a particle. The particles are not obviously uncausable. So if you say, well, maybe it's not obviously uncausable, it's just uncausable anyway. You can try that. But then the worry is, well, how do I know that my brain isn't like that? Maybe my brain is one of these uncausable, uncausable things, but is it obviously uncausable? Skepticism, okay. My brain could have just popped into existence without any cause. Right? So in order to rule that out, I've got to say, well, that, that can't be because the brain is not obviously uncausable, therefore it must have a cause. Now I, get, I escape skepticism. Right? So now the particle is not obviously uncausable, right? so it must have a cause. And that eventually gets to be something like that. That's the idea. Yeah. So anyway, we can talk about this more in the discussion. But I think uh, I mean I, pre I appreciate the question, but we'll definitely get get to that a bit. Um, so um, so the first cause has to be simple or absolute existence. Because if it weren't, it would be limited. And if it were limited, any limitation would have a cause. Right? Particles are limited. Right? <laughs> They're in a particular place at a particular time at a particular velocity. Those need causes. That's the idea, right? Anything that has a specific measure like that's like a cause. Only something immeasurable, right? Absolute, absolute existence could be uncausable. That's the idea. Okay, um, could there be more than one of these things? Well, uh, arguably no, because uh, if they're each identical to absolute existence, they'd be identical to each other. Right? That's the Euclid principle. If A is identical to B and B is identical to A to C, then, then A and C are identical as well. Um, it has to have all possible power, because it's the cause of all possible beings. And to have all possible power, you have to have all other positive attributes to a maximum degree. So you can't really be maximally powerful without freedom, knowledge, I would argue goodness, and so on as well. Okay, so that's the philosophical stuff. Um, so, you know, even if you're not completely convinced by it, you might say, well, okay, so there's a case, right, for the possible existence of, of, a, of a supernatural being. Okay. Now we turn to physics, right? And we say, wow, guess what? You know, the universe had a, did have a beginning, right? Um, and this was fiercely resisted, this Big Bang kind of stuff, by Einstein and by lots of other astronomers, on theological grounds, right? Because they thought, well, if the universe had a beginning, that sounds like Genesis 1, So they tried to go with every possible way to avoid it, but, uh, but it has, it's, it's largely failed, I think. Um, so um, there's all kinds of empirical evidence right now that the universe began 13.7 uh, billion years ago. Whatever it begins to just has a cause. Um, now some people have tried to push this back to a pre-Big Bang uh, world, possible, but there's a theorem in 2003 that any inflationary model um, that meets very limited constraints will have to have some Big Bang in the time. So even if you look at the stuff we talk about pre-Big Bang models, and you ask them, yeah, okay, but was there some original beginning before that? They'll say, yeah, of course there was. Right? So, so it's really almost impossible to build a cosmological model that doesn't have that at some point or other. Right? Um, so um, so we, can, we can infer that the first cause is wise and personal by examining the evidence. Right? 
examining the creation because the creation is obviously organized for certain purposes. It, avoid, it obeys simple universal laws. It permits the development of life. It contains human beings and has, gives us the capacity for universal knowledge. Again, there's a lot I can say about this, right? But essentially what we find is that um, if you had the possibility of an intelligent God as the cause of everything, it would explain a lot of phenomena, right? Uh, in a very natural way. Right? Why, are these, why are these fundamental constants set in such a way that complex chemistry is possible? You get carbon, you get living things. Um, my friend Robin Collins at Messiah College has been doing a lot of work on the fine-tuning universal physics. So it seems like whoever created the universe really wanted us to be able to do physics. <laughs> so he set up the, the constraints of physics in such a way that it was possible for you know, creatures like us right, uh, to actually discover deep principles about the physical world. Um, if there's a God, that's all explainable, right? Because God might like knowledge. Knowledge is a good thing, right? And so he might create the conditions that are possible for that. Uh, and so if you, if, if, you're gonna if you even consider that as a hypothesis, you've got overwhelming evidence in favor of it. And it's astronomically uh, convincing evidence, right? Uh, you know, 10 to the 100th power or something, uh, at least 143, I think, uh, uh, Roger Penrose says. Um, so, um, so again, we've got, we've got simple laws of nature, we've got anthropic fine-tuning, all of which, you know, this is just, this is icing on the cake, right, from a theistic point of view. Not really working all by itself. Uh, just for reason of time to go over some of this. Um, yeah, I don't have time to go through the anthropic coincidence, but we can go over it during discussion if you'd like. Um, so, to summarize what I've said so far, we've got a kind of convergence of arguments, right, from metaphysics, <clears throat> all these first cause arguments, from science, Big Bang and fine-tuning, and the two are, are stronger together than they are individually. Right? Atheists like to do the divide and conquer, or they consider each argument by itself, right? but you consider them all together, it's really tough, I think, to avoid the conclusion. Um, so um, one last point here I'm gonna make before we wrap it up, um, and that is that science itself is the best scientific evidence for God. Right? Uh, every new scientific discovery, whatever, right? discovery about proteins or nematodes or whatever, it all confirms God's existence. Right? That, that's my claim. Uh, how is that, right? Well, without faith in the rational intelligibility of the world and our divine vocation of human beings to master it, modern science would never have been possible. So this is just a historical claim. But it's almost undeniable if you look at history. Uh, Alfred North Whitehead, John Seth Beedham, but I could, I could cite you 15, 20 that works on this. So all of the pioneers of science right, in the Western world uh, were theists. Right? And they were all theists who were influenced by a kind of broadly Abrahamic Judeo-Christian kind of framework, right? in which they believed that the creator was rational and intelligent, and that we were created in his image, and given the vocation of understanding the world around us. It's the only reason they did science, right? because they expected to be able to understand the world that God created. Democritus is sometimes attributed right, for creating the atomic theory, got science going, it was a complete dead end, right? Because Democritus thought we didn't have God. So he thought every atom was gonna have a unique shape, right? With lots of little hooks and stuff, the next atom would be different, the next atom would be different, and they're all tiny and invisible. How do you do chemistry with that, right? What, what, would, your, what would your periodic table look like? <laughs> it, would have, it, it would have a zillion cells and no structure to it, right? So in order for chemistry to be possible, you have to have Simple structures, right, that are repeated over and over again and organized in such a way that they're intelligible to us, right? Why did anybody expect that they could find that? Because they were theists, right? 
as they believed it would be created by God. So, uh, so it was a bold hypothesis in the 17th century, almost a crazy hypothesis, and it worked out, right? So when you make a crazy, bold hypothesis and it works out, it confirms whatever assumptions were driving that hypothesis, right? In this case, it was theism. So there's a historical argument here. Um, there were three, three theological preconditions. One was belief in the intelligibility of the universe as the artifact of a perfect mind. Um, second one was, and this is related to the law of nature. So physicists talk about the laws of nature all the time. Law of nature is a theological concept. It was introduced by Basil of Caesarea in uh, his book on the six days, right? Because if there's a law of nature, there's a law giver, right? Uh, so you can't explain things in, with, with laws of nature without presupposing a law giver in the background. And historically, that was entirely the case. Um, a belief in the fitness of the human mind, right? So, you know, we evolved on the savannas of Africa, right? To survive against predators and so on. What does that have to do with quarks and, uh, you know, uh, fine tuning and, and fine uh, structure constants and all of that? Nothing, right? I mean, there's no, there's no connection here. But if you believe that we're creating the image of God, Right? And God told us, you know, have responsibility for all this creation. Right? Then you had the confidence that it was intelligible to us, even, right? that he built us in such a way that it could make sense of it. Uh, oops. Um, and uh, the need for observation experiment, right? Why do people do experiments rather than just sit in their armchairs and keep thoughts? Right? Uh, because they thought that God was free, right? and therefore it couldn't just work out, right? So yes, he was rational, he was also free, right? And so you had to, you had to do experiments, make observations, see how you exercise that freedom, right? So all those three came together to make empirical science possible. Uh, without those, it would have been impossible. Now you might say, okay, fine, that's a historical fact there, but we're supposed to do philosophy here, right? So what is this supposed to do with philosophy? Well, I think they're connected, actually. But in any case, you can make a purely philosophical argument, as Alvin Planning has um, in his book, uh, Where the Conflict Really Lies, and uh, his argument is that, um, again, all empirical knowledge is impossible, uh, and this is chapter 10, unless you presuppose God. So, um, so if, you, if you presuppose materialism without a designer who intended man to be equipped with, with an aptitude for truth, this leads to an epistemic catastrophe, Planning argues, where the defeat of all the materialist aspirations for knowledge. Um, what's the materialist quandary, right? Well. Lacking any explanation for his own reliability rather than dumb luck, the materialist occupies a position that's untenable for the purposes of asserting claims to scientific knowledge. Right? So again, how is it that we're able to glom onto deep scientific and philosophical truths? Right? If there's no survival value for that on the plains of Africa a million years ago, right? Af plains of Africa, the tiger that's gonna eat you doesn't care. <laughs> whether you can do tensor calculus or not, right? Totally useless for that purpose. So, so what is it, right, that enables us to do this? And Charles has to say, well, we just won the cosmic lottery somehow. Just by sheer dumb luck, we ended up with the brain that enabled us to discover this stuff, right? Um, but, um, but that means that materialism really can't draw any support from modern science, right? Um, because when, you're, when you press, I find when I press materialists on this point, they'll often say, well, okay, so, yeah, so maybe we can't really get to the truth power key. We just discover useful stuff. Um, okay, well, at that point, you're no longer a scientific realist, right? Uh, you, you, don't, you don't really believe in any of the results of science anymore. You're just saying it's useful. It's useful stuff to believe in, right? And 
And so now you can't use science as, as a weapon against theism anymore, right? Because you don't know anything, right? You just you know useful stuff. You don't know anything about reality. Uh, so I think that there's a real, real dilemma there. Um, I mean, planning has got a more detailed argument here, which uh, probably don't have time to go into. Um, but, uh, but basically, the thought is that um, you have to consider the possibility, right, that um, our brains are creating, if, if you're a materialist, right, brains just create this kind of fiction in our head, right, which is useful for, for reproduction. Right? And whether that fiction is true or not, whether it matches up to reality or not, something nature has no concern with whatsoever. And so if you look at it, think about it for a minute. I mean, here's the brain that's functioning in the world around it. It could believe the truth, or it could believe almost an infinite number of fictions, which are all behaviorally equivalent to the truth. Right? They all would work just as well. So nature doesn't care. So you throw a dart at the board, right? What are the odds you're going to get the truth theory as opposed to one of the fictions? Astronomically small, right? Almost certainly you're going to get one of the fictions. And that means, again, that if you're a materialist, you shouldn't believe in science. You should think the odds that against our science being true is astronomically high. If you're a theist, nothing. The contrary, right? So every time science works, every time science succeeds, it actually conform, confirms theism rather than the other way around. Um, so belief in God is, is some supported both by philosophical arguments and scientific evidence, and theism is a practical presupposition of science itself. So all science confirms the truth of theism. Stop there. I think my, my one worry is a little bit about this, like the idea that pluralities uh, may be said to, to have um, causes. I mean, if you don't yeah. have some principle of composition at work or something like that, in virtue of which the, the plurality is something over and above its, its individual members, yeah. how, do you, how do you justify the idea that this, this plurality has a, a cause that's distinct from the causes of its members? I mean, you could right. have like a disjunctive kind of cause where you explain each of the yeah. yeah. Well, I'm okay with that. So I'm actually okay with a plurality having another plurality as its cause, okay. right? So I'm not necessarily saying there has to be a single cause. Mm -hmm. The argument doesn't need that. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just that the, whatever the cause or causes of plurality are, they have to be disjoint from the, from the effect, right? Mm -hmm. That's all I need, right? Because now consider the plurality of all the natural stuff, right? You don't have to have a cause or causes. All of those causes will have to be supernatural, right? Because if they were natural, they'd be part of the effect. Yeah. And then there's a separate argument saying there's only one supernatural move. That's a whole other, that's another additional move you have to make, right? So the, the original move doesn't really get you the uniqueness of God. It just gets you one or more supernatural beings, right? And then yeah, there are various moves to make there to try to argue for this. You should just go for one. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I'm just, I'm just wondering if the, the move where you have to say that the, the cause here of a plurality is disjoint from its effect, yeah. it, it sort of seems to assume that the effect is a, is one thing or something like that. Yeah. Um, right. Whereas, I mean, and I know so you got the cannonball. Yeah, so this is our, exactly. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, you're, you're appealing to, again, this kind of human picture, right? Yeah. Where you have this infinite regress, right? And the regress doesn't have a cause. You say, yeah, sure, because each part has a cause, right? Namely, it's receiving part. And therefore, the whole thing is a cause, right? And I would say, yeah, not really, right? Because uh, I mean, you, you've only explained it in terms of its own parts of it in terms of other parts, right? You, or members of the plurality in terms of other members. You haven't explained the plurality as a whole, right? So my point again is, okay, but is the plurality 
obviously uncausal? Well, there are lots of pluralities that have causes, right? So the mere fact that there's more than one thing there, more than one fact there, isn't enough to rule out it's having a cause. Uh, I mean, really, when I have sensory experience, that's a plurality, right? Um, you know, I have a bunch of sensations bouncing around all at once, a bunch of memories, and so on. And uh, we assume that those things aren't just caused by each other, right? Uh, I, I, I get in, in the Phil, Phil Studies paper, we talk about this in some more detail. So, um, I mean, again, suppose, suppose you have this, this like Boltzmann self, right, up there in deep space, right? And he's thinking, Okay, so I, I, I have this, these experiences. Do they have a cause? I think, well, wait, Hume, you know, maybe not. Maybe there's just this infinite regress. Okay? But then you might think, well, wait a minute. Maybe my, my, my sensation now is caused by a sensation of, you know, half a second before. And that's caused by another sensation four seconds before that, and so on. So the whole sensation is an infinite regress, right? Therefore, no cause. Now I'm back to skepticism again, right? So in order to escape that, I have to say, well, even if that were true, right? The sensations as a whole would not be obviously uncausable. They still have to have a cause of the perfect time, and then you get an escape and skepticism. Okay. So unless unless you were to, unless you could argue, so there's a this is this is I mean admittedly this is a point that I, that I think about a lot. <laughs> this is why I've actually got at least three lines of, of defense against it, right? Uh, and and so one is is the sort of cannibal illustration, right? One is this kind of skepticism worry, and the third one is the column stuff. Bomb stuff, the Grim Reaper stuff, doesn't require the plurality at all. So, uh, and then there's additionally, you know, there, again, this, this um, the 2022 paper, a book, book by Bruce on infinite, infinite causality and paradox, right? It, it develops the Grim Reaper kind of thing, you know, ad infinitum, <laughs> basically, lots and lots of variations on that, all sort of pressing towards this idea of causal finitude, with everything else about finite number of causes. So that, that's another way of eliminating that. Yeah, so it's you know it's definitely an interesting interesting problem. I think I like all three of those responses myself. Uh, so uh, there's nothing to pick me up at night anymore. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. This question is coming from like a point of skepticism. Yeah. Uh, so you said that God is behind the whole Big Bang thing. Yeah. Uh, if that is the case, why did it take us billions of years for humans, as we know them, to like yeah come into existence? Right. So, um, I haven't read this. Um, very hard to second guess God. <laughs> Not being nearly as smart as he is, right? Very hard to say, wait, God, why didn't you do it this other way? I mean, this looks better to me. I mean, who knows? So, I think it's, it's the wrong way to approach the problem, right? The approach is not, God did things exactly the way I would have done them. Therefore, there's an intelligence of God out there. That's not the point of the argument. The argument is, well, there's all this stuff going on there. Oh my gosh, it's all fine-tuned for some particular result. Wow, you know, intelligent beings do that kind of stuff, right? So why is it possible after billions of years for us to be here? That wasn't easy. That took a lot of fine-tuning, right? And you say, oh, okay, so God must have had that in mind. Why did you do it that way, not some other way? I have no idea. Because <laughs> I'm like, God, I'm not smart enough to figure that out. Um, look, I mean, is it obviously bad? Take billions of years? You're God, you've got all the time in the world, literally. <laughs> he's, in, he's not in any rush, he doesn't have any deadlines. He's like, oh my gosh, we gotta get the world finished in you know, seven years or something, seven days. No, he's got all the time in the world. He's got all the resources in the world. So if he wants to take billions and billions of years, I mean, it's actually kind of surprising, it only took 14 billion. <laughs> when you consider you know, all, all the kinds of time it could have taken, right? 
so yeah, I mean, if, if I'm surprised by anything, I'm actually surprised by how quickly it went. Um, you know, just, I mean, in, in a sense, no matter how long it was, <laughs> you look at it and say, wow, only that much time? That's amazing, considering how much time it could have taken. Uh, Google Flex years, right? I, I easily imagine that. So, but yeah, I, I, don't, I think that's kind of worries. I just, yeah, I think they're just misplaced, right? It's a misunderstanding. It's a, people read too much Hume, right? Think that it's kind of argument from analogy here. That we're looking at the universe and thinking, oh, that looks exactly like a watch, right? Uh, and therefore, I can figure out that's not the argument at all. The form of the argument is you've got multiple things, right? All of which conspire together to produce a single simple effect. That's the remarkable thing. When you see that, that's a sign of intelligence. Um, and here you've got 30 different, fine, 30 different constants that had to be fine tuned to produce chemistry, part of it. Again, I could go through that part in detail if you'd like me to. Uh, that's remarkable, right? God must love carbon for some reason. We can't guess why, right? Carbon's really cool for building chemistry. You need to get rid of these things, you need carbon, and so on. So it, it kind of makes sense. Yeah? Can I do a follow-up? Yeah, sure. Um, with the other millions of galaxies that we've observed? Yeah, again, God's got so much energy that he could afford to create a world gazillion light years across to produce one little garden if he wants to. No problem. Why? Again, it's like, oh, that was so much work making all those galaxies. No, it's not easy. Right? Super easy. Right? So, um, so I, you know, maybe they're all full of life. I don't know. But if they aren't, even if they're, even if they're the only place with life in all this vast universe, no big deal. It's, got, it's just it's easy for God. Right? It's, no, it's no problem for God. So, you know, it's not like he, had, well, he only has this much space to work with. Try to cram as much life as possible. You've got an infinity of space. So you have to, you know, we have to think differently here. We have to realize we're talking about an infinite being, right? And that's that's got to change our expectations somehow. And people don't do that enough, right? You look even the whole problem of the evil stuff, right? We have the same problem, I think, right? And people think, I mean, I think, you know, why didn't God create this better world? Okay, well, I have multiple problems with that. Uh, is there such a thing as the world at all? Actually, doubt it. Maybe there's just systems inside of bigger systems inside of bigger systems. There's no world. But I think it makes sense to say, is the, how good is the world? You know, if there is a world, is there such a thing as the best possible world? I doubt it. I mean, any world God can make you make a better one, right? So forget the whole maximizing thing. God's not trying to produce the best possible world. It's not what he's doing. He's just trying to do some interesting good things. That's it. So, you know, you can say, well, that's interesting good. But couldn't he have done it better? Maybe. So what? Doesn't matter. He's not, he's not trying to maximize things. So it, it, most times when people say, why didn't God do X? I think the right answer is, for absolutely no reason. Why should he have a reason not to do things? He's God. <laughs> he can do so many things that he can't have a reason not to do all of them. <laughs> so most of them he has no reason at all for not doing it. And that's fine. I mean, actually, you, know, you and I don't do lots of things for no reason. <laughs> right? And that's no problem. Right? Nothing irrational about not doing things for no reason. Right? Why didn't I, you know, I don't know, skip and sing, you know, when I came in the room? I don't know. No reason. Doesn't it be irrational? No. Right? Why didn't God create a world where, you know, I'm seven feet tall instead of six? No reason. So it's not, it's not an issue, right? So once you, once you take into account, you know, the, the fact that we're dealing with an infinite being rather than a finite being, you've got to be really careful about seeing things like this. Right? 
Um, I don't think it rules out the argument from design, though, if it's done properly, right? Which is to say, you know, you've got to do it in a very rigorous sort of way, right? Conspiracy of causes to a single effect. That's the thing to focus on. You see that, that's intelligence. But don't think about, what couldn't you've done this other thing? Like, whatever, right? It's not a problem. We shouldn't, shouldn't go there. Uh, I apologize for yeah. speaking earlier. I didn't know there was a QA. Yeah, so, no, no problem, no worries. Um, so, I'm not sure I want to. No, I forgot. Um, yeah. You said the, the cosmological constant, um, we don't know why it's that. Because in the speed of light, we don't know why it's that big of a beam. Yeah. And your argument would be God fine tuning those yeah. numbers. Um, do you see any problem with that line of thinking if that stops you from investigating why? Yeah, there might be right. the science stopper kind of argument. Um, no, I don't think it does, though, right? Because, again, God is not a cause inside the world, right? If you're a cause inside the world, then you would compete with all these other physical mechanisms. He's outside the world. So no matter how many physical mechanisms we discover, that's great. Actually, if you can, you can explain why the, fine, why the constants have the form they do in terms of some one super constant, great, right? Because then there's still a question of why that super constant has the value it has. So eventually get back to God. So, um, so yeah, I, I, that, don't, that doesn't bother me at all. In fact, in a way, the more tightly constrained you make the world, the more evidence we have, actually. Right? So the more the more you can discover about the kind of underlying causes of these things, the more, you know, as I was saying, more science is better for theism, right? The more successful science we do, the more it confirms the fact that this is an intelligible universe that God made us you know, to understand. So quite the opposite, right? Theism is not the science stopper. Atheism is the science stopper, actually. And you see this happening, actually, right? I mean, you see more and more atheistic scientists saying, Ugh, the whole thing is hopeless, right? So we'll never figure it out, right? Because, you know, our brains were designed for the African Sahel, right? So why should we figure this stuff out? And, and so I think this is one of the reasons why scientific progress is slowing down, because of a lack of that theological confidence, right, that, our, that Kepler had that uh, Linnaeus had, that Newton had, right? That uh, we can figure this stuff out, right? Because it's an intelligent God who made it. I mean, look, one thing I didn't mention in the talk, there's a, there's a, there's a line in the Wisdom of Solomon, uh, chapter 13, I think, uh, that God made everything with number, measure, and weight, right? It was the most often quoted verse in the, in the Middle Ages, reading up the Scientific Revolution, right? Because they thought that the God who created the world is a mathematical God, right? Kepler talks about this all the time. We're thinking God's geometry after him in, in, in physics, right? And, uh, and so, so far from being a science stopper, theism is the greatest excellent of science that ever been, and it, it will continue to be so. Yeah. So, I, uh, so I'm personally a theist, yeah. um, but over, over time I've gotten a little more skeptical of ontological arguments. I do subscribe to ontological arguments, but I'm not sure that they can necessarily prove like yeah so you don't um, mean the ontological right? I mean this kind of argument. right like Kalam and stuff I'm yeah like, it, I, I thought the Grim Reaper argument was something to think about I should think about more but I'm still skeptical of it yeah something that's kept me interested in uh, theology and I think personally it's perhaps a stronger argument in today's world is consciousness and why that exists do you do any work on that yeah, I've done some work on that too. I mean, so, you know, there was a book a few years ago that I contributed to called uh, Two Dozen or So Arguments for God's Existence, right? And, uh, 
And even that is a small sampling, right? There's at least 100 pretty good arguments for bisexual essentially. So I've given you know, three or four here. So there's a lot more to consider. Um, pretty much any place you start, right? Beauty, right? Right. consciousness, uh, morality, uh, knowledge, it's going to lead to God eventually if you follow it far enough, I think. Uh, so, yeah, so, you know, and, and, you know, like a, you know, a rope, each part of the rope is just a little bit of straw that's easy to break, right? But you put a couple hundred of them together and it's unbreakable, right? So, in a similar kind of way, um, you know, if you're a skeptic or an atheist, you have to consider the whole rope, not just the individual stance. Um, it's an important thing. So, yeah, uh, consciousness, I think, is, is a plausible place to start. Um, I mean, I, 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 I approach it as an Aristotelian, so as opposed to the more Cartesian way that most people start today. So, so I, I assume that, um, right, that there really is a redness in the world, right, that my mind is taking in when I see that red box over there, right? Oh, so I'm not sort of worried about, where's this red quality coming from? It's so weird, it's not physical. No, there's redness out there in the world, right? Uh, so, so it's not that mysterious in a way that I've got this red sensation, because it's, it's the redness of the box itself that's sort of presenting itself to me. So I have a different set of worries, but there's still a question about, okay, how did that happen? <laughs> how did it happen that I've got this kind of mind that somehow got an openness to the world so that things can actually kind of speak to it in that way? That requires something I've got to think of, right? Um, and so if you, you know, uh, if you try to go with some representationalist route where you don't really ever see anything exactly, you just have these representations that kind of stand in for the stuff that we're supposed to be seeing, then that creates all these quality of problems and so on. So that it creates another nest of problems that nobody's able to solve uh, because they've been trying to avoid, um, avoid God, ultimately, right? But they've come up with this other attack, which leads to these other insolubilia. Um, so that's, I think that's an awful lot of what's going on in, in modern philosophy, right? Um, a kind of theophobia, right, is behind an awful lot of contemporary philosophy. If you, you dig a bit into it. Uh, and, uh, and so, uh, it's important to kind of be aware of that. Yeah. Um, so I'm sure uh, part of the argument you made in the first cause argument. Yeah. We're going from an obviously uncaused being to an infinite being. Yeah. So the argument is essentially that uh, when we have the obviously uncaused being, if any aspect of it had a limit, so it wasn't infinite, that yeah. limit would require uncausable. Uncausable. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Any limit upon that uh, uncausable being. Uh, would itself require a cause, right? That's the idea. It, it, it's the sort of Einstein-Weinberg idea, right? That the finite limits kind of call for explanation, right? You can at least imagine there could be an explanation for that. Why is it that rather than some other value nearby, right? And so it's not obviously uncausable either. Whereas if you have something that's isolated, just absolute being, right? Um, you know, well, there's nothing to explain there, right? Other than just it is. And so, uh, so it, it's it's the kind of thing that uh, that takes you off of the um, out of the uh, the explanation game, so to speak, right? which is what you want. Right? You want to find that stopping point that, in a in a non-arbitrary way, right? is, is is unexplainable. This is the thing that uh, I think I think it was um, Schopenhauer makes this point, right? Schopenhauer says, you know, you theists, you treat you treat these arguments as kind of taxing. Take you to God and then you say, okay, go away, stop, I can stop you here, right? And you can always ask, why not ask what God, why did what cause God, right? And of course, um, uh, Dawkins and others make this kind of line too, right? Okay, yeah, you, you, God is a cause, all this stuff, but what caused God, right? 
I'm explaining why that's a mistake, right? Because the principle is every un, everything that's causable, right? It's not obviously uncausable that can cause, right? So that has an obvious exception, namely the obviously uncausable thing, right? And so why don't you look for a cause for that? Because it's uncausable, it's obviously uncausable, right? It's not, you're not arbitrarily just stopping somewhere. You're, you're being led to the obvious stopping point, right? The one own, own only possible obvious stopping point. Uh, and that's exactly what Thomas does, actually, if I believe you carefully, right? Exactly the strategy, right, is to take us to the one thing that doesn't demand an explanation, but it's obviously unexplainable. Right? That's, that's the thought. And, and it has to be, and if it had any kind of limitation to whatsoever, that would no longer be obviously unexplainable. You could ask, why not a little bit more, a little bit less? Right? Um, but if you take something that's completely off the picture, then. And this, this gets into this, you know, this classical theism book that was just coming out this next week. Um, same thing. I mean, if you if you think that God is like like a Marvel superhero or something, <laughs> which I think unfortunately a lot of Christians do think it's something like that, then it doesn't kind of arbitrary to stop, right? Who made Thor, right? I mean, there's lots of reasons to ask, right? You've got obvious limitations, right? Who made Odin? Who made who made it, right? Um, but if you if you have a classical God, those questions obviously make make any perfect. What's your opinion on divine simplicity? Yeah, I mean, I didn't get into that, but uh, that, that's sort of very much related to this, right? Because, again, if God were complex in any way, then that would ask for some kind of explanation as to what put him together, so to speak, or holds him together, right? I mean, if, if God has a nature, right, what holds the nature and God together, such that he has that nature? That would need a cause. So, therefore, God must be a being that doesn't have a nature. He sort of is his own nature, right? So it's, you know, again, very different from anything else people are familiar with. Um, and that's, again, that's a feature, not a bug, right? <laughs> yes, it makes God really hard to understand. Not surprising, I think, right? If, if God came out as really easy to understand, you've made a mistake somewhere, right? Uh, so you need to go back and work on yourself. Yeah. yeah, I mean, so I hold the divine simplicity, but yeah. Um, you know, it's a very Aristotelian idea, right, that wholes are prior to their parts in some respect. Yeah, right? yeah, right. How, how do you, I mean, if you don't have time to go into that, that's yeah. fine, but how do you address that worry that actually, I mean, you could just say, well, God is kind of prior to his parts. Is the yeah. explanation of it. Right, right, yeah. So you could do something like that. Um, and um, let's see, what, what do I want to say about that exactly? Um, So, so then the question would be, does he have these parts necessarily or contingently, I guess? So if he has them contingently, but they, they're somehow essential to his functioning or something, then I think we'd have trouble, right? Because what would cause him to have those parts? Because if he needs the parts to function, then it would be a vicious circle. So, um, so they would either have to be something that were that was necessarily part of them, um, which actually, in my ninety-seven paper, that's that's where I stop. I basically, say, okay, so either either he's simple or he has necessarily existing parts, right, yeah. that are related in a certain way. Uh, so, yeah. So you're asking me why do I rule that out now? Because uh, I would, I think, and I'm drawing a blank. Actually, I have to look again. At the, at the, I mean. 
Could you say something like, uh, I mean, even though in some respect the whole is prior to part, there's still, I mean, the parts still play an explanatory role with respect to aspects of the whole. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's right. That's a good point. Yeah, so, so in Aristotle, I mean, it, it's not really the case that the whole is absolutely prior to its parts, so to speak, right? I mean, it's it's not reducible to its parts, but, but, but also the parts aren't typically, at least, near the phenomenon of the whole either, right? There's a kind of interdependency some sort. Yeah, if I lose my arm, I'm different. Yeah, right, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So so if God had parts, right, then there would be a kind of dependency of God in those parts, right? And then you'd have to have an explanation for what keeps those parts going. Or you could say it was God himself, I guess. Um, but still, I, I mean, yeah, it's a, it's a good question, actually. I'd have, to, I'd have to think a little bit more about that. Um, um, I mean, some people do think I mean, we could get into the Trinity, of course, uh, but I think that the three persons of the Trinity are not parts of God, right? They're more like aspects or something like that of God. So um, it's really just God as Father related to God as Son in some respects, so I mean, we need more context perhaps. Yeah, yeah it's a good question. Yeah, so I'm sorry, I got to kind of punt on that one. I think a good answer. Yeah. If you have, like, the unfoldable being Seems like you don't need the 13.7 billion years long. Seems like those are just there to accommodate theists who want you to take you seriously. Like, if it's if the sure the process can be fine tuned to why I'm here, but it makes more sense to me that I'm fine tuned to be here, not that the process of how I got here is fine tuned. I mean, sure, it may, I think yeah. it doesn't right. make sense, but it makes more sense that right. he gave us like a divinely inspired reason as to why we're here. Not that it's like a like a purpose of prayer to me that oh it's like it's a you know it's like true but not literally true. It makes more sense that the thirteen seven thirteen point seven billion is like a But why would I but why would I want to be skeptical about all the astronomical information that shows us thirteen billion years old? I mean, that's exactly my point, is is that theism makes me very credible, credit makes science very credible. And so it says, you know, if if, if science told me the world was ten thousand years old, that's great, I believe that. It tells me it's 13.7 billion, that's fine, I believe that. I, mean, I don't see how it's even relevant one way or the other about its existence. No, I'm saying like, it's like probably not like, it doesn't, it's not like relevant, but I don't, I don't, it doesn't, I don't know, If I had some strong reason to doubt it, I guess I might, but I don't. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to figure it out. Again, you, you, you might be this sort of, this sort of advice is kind of why did God do it this way kind of question, which I, Sort of refuse to answer it. It's like, you know, you can't possibly answer that question. I mean, you can speculate. You could say it's kind of cool that it took 13 billion years to unfold in this way, maybe, you know, work uh, together. And, uh, and anyway, the whole process is kind of cool, like galaxy formation, star formation, uh, supernova spewing elements out in space, and all that stuff. It makes, it, it makes for a cool narrative, right? So if God, is, if God is the author, you know, the cooler the story, right, the better, right? It seems more like impersonal. I don't know, everything, I don't know, the Bible tells me that like, God is personal with God, and the 13.7 somehow tells me that's an impersonal way of our God here. And it's something that doesn't seem compatible to me a little bit. Yeah, yeah, so so you think that, again, if, if God, I don't know, um, did it all more quickly, right, that would somehow be more personal? Well, not so, yeah, sure, I'm <laughs> saying like, um, <laughs> like, right. Um, no, I guess like the, yeah, I guess you can, yeah, I mean, if you group 
amount of time that it's missing. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it seems like if you so I, like I don't see a problem here thinking that the world's thirteen point seven billion years ago and God personally created me. So it doesn't bother me at all, right? In fact, maybe you might even think that's really cool. Think how much God loves us and spend all that time, 13.7 billion years putting on galaxies and stuff uh, to produce. No, I suppose I don't want to be too anthropocentric. I mean, obviously, he cares about sparrows and stuff too, right? So, um, but you know, um, still, um, yeah, it's, it's kind of cool that uh, we can see that among the things that he was aiming at was us. I guess an answer in my head and it might not make sense to that question could be maybe he didn't take 13.7 billion years to make intelligent uh, species. Yeah. He's probably making species all over the yeah. universe all the time. That's quite possible. And we just happen to be the ones that what came about 13.7 years later. That's quite right. Yeah, very possible. And actually, as, as Christians, we think that he created lots of intelligent creatures right from the very beginning, like angels and stuff. So, so yeah, so we're not the only. I mean, it's interesting that he that he wanted to make us, you know, because I mean, Aquinas says that we're the we're the least impressive kind of intelligent creature that can be imagined, <laughs> because anything that's angelic is much greater than us. So we're like we're, and it, and it, you know, it, it, so it's interesting. Why did God do that? Why did he create the least impressive intelligent creature? But well, why not, right? Just you know, sheer variety, right? Um, just to fill out the, the picture, perhaps, right? So yeah, so I don't want to, you know, again, we don't want to, we don't want to get too big ahead of this whole process, right? Think that uh, that we're somehow we're, we're like quasi divine or something, because but, but I mean we are pretty cool. We're in God's image, right? That, that's that's cool, right? I think, um, but um, yeah, it's uh, certainly not. It doesn't put us necessarily at the top of the heap. Yeah. Um, it seems like a lot of the scientists. Yeah. Where it used to be that we were computers. Yeah. Uh, what do you know? Like, what caused that shift? Is it just is there maybe? Yeah, some complicated thing, isn't it? Um, I mean, one thing that's actually interesting is that um, the more this is generally true, right? That at least in the last hundred years or so, the higher your social status, the more likely you are to be atheist. And so, um, and this goes back. This is something that Paul observed, right? And that Jesus observes. Right, in the Gospels already, right? He says, uh, you know, uh, Paul says, not many wise, you know, not many noble uh, among us, among our believers, right? God chooses the, chooses the foolish, right? And so if, you, if you've got a high social status, that creates a lot of pride, and you are sort of defined. Like Vincent Weinberg said, you know, we're the coolest things in the universe, for sure. We're the coolest things in reality, right? We're human beings. And we Nobel Prize winning physicists especially, right? We're like the best, we're the highest being that could possibly exist. And so, if you have that kind of attitude, you know, you know, like God in the picture, right? It's a, it's a humbling thing to, to think of think of yourself as being created by God. So, so that's my crude sociological explanation, right? As scientists rise in social status, um, and actually, it's just if you look at even among scientists, people who get in the natural category of sciences are much more likely to be atheists than those who are in the standard practice that scientists are. That's because they're smarter, but I don't know if they are actually. They're just more. They've, they've arrived socially to a greater degree, right? They've got the kudos, they've got the respect of their colleagues, and that makes it really hard to be a Christian, certainly. 
um, because you know you have to just the same reason that if you're wealthy, it's hard to read. So that I think that's a big part of the fact. Yeah. Um, I have a quick question. So I I, I am an atheist and I'm, I I don't consider myself as you know the reason what you said like yeah those are the reasons why I'm an atheist. Sure. We're talking about generalities here, right? Sure. Um, the the reason I don't believe in a God is because I have not found an evidence. I'm not an anti-theist. I don't want God not to exist. Yeah. I am completely fine. Um, and if if I find an evidence, I will believe. I have not found compelling evidence for God to exist. And like I said, nature exists is an evidence for you that God exists. But you can understand why that doesn't necessarily mean yeah. to me empirically that God exists. So yeah. my question is, I guess, what do you call an evidence? Well. I mean, I've sketched a little bit of it today, right? Um, so there's quite a large literature out there, actually. Um, let's start with my stuff, Lucy's stuff, um, Desmus's stuff, uh, Robin Collins's stuff, uh, a few dozen books, of books and so on. So, yeah, I mean, it wouldn't take you forever. Bookshelf, full stuff. Uh, so, yeah, we'll get it. And uh, I think it's pretty convincing itself. Um, so it's uh, I'm not you know, I'm not appealing here to um, um, what should I say to blind faith or anything like that right I'm saying there are good reasons to conclude that, that there's a God I mean you know, you can't it's a free country right <laughs> you can't force somebody to reach a conclusion right uh, and um, it's always possible to just say I don't really want to investigate this question. This is, this is what I find open with a lot of my colleagues, right? They just don't want to go there, right? Uh, and I can't make that. But if you're open to going there, then I think, look at it, because I think it's, I think it's convincing. Um, you know, I, I mean, philosophy's hard, obviously, right? So there's always going to be room for doubt, for sure, on philosophical topics, right? Um, but, um, but, you know, one thing I find again with my colleagues is that you know when they look at other things, right, they're well aware of that, right? So somebody, I'm, I'm a materialist, I'm a dualist, and whatever, and they know there's lots of doubt. They're still totally convinced they're right, right? Because they, because uh, they, they, they recognize, you know, that uh, the you know, philosophy is hard. But then when it comes to natural theology, it's like all of a sudden, well, unless you can prove it beyond all possible doubt, I'm not going to believe it. Wait a minute, why, why are you suddenly raising the standards so much higher? Just say, well, what's the most reasonable guess at this point? Right? Uh, you put it that way, I think. I think the answer is pretty clear. Uh, that uh, that is a much more reasonable guess than we think. And then that may open you up to other things. I mean, maybe you open up to then the possible religious experiences and so on as a way to, to be more confirmation. What were some of the authors that you mentioned? Yeah, so um, let's, let me find that uh, slide, very beginning slide here. I mean, like I say, it's, it's a pretty small selection, but obviously I think it's a pretty good one. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, yeah, here we go. So, um, well, obviously, you know, if you haven't read Thomas, you should. And, um, and don't just read the five ways, right? Read the first 
20 or 30 articles uh, part one because you know I mean in, in five ways Thomas says you know and this everyone calls God I mean, at the end of each of five ways you say, wait a minute all you've shown is that there's an uncaused being or there's a tiny thing and so on but he's just saying you know hold on I'm gonna explain later but it's God so you have to you have to read those first 20 or 30 articles before you can really get the big picture um, proofs um, Principle of sufficient reason, proofs and Rasmussen, necessary existence. They ran an interesting experiment on the internet where they asked you like 20 or 30 questions. And then, and then they showed you, given your answers, that the question answer you, you gave linked to the existence of, of, of necessary being. And they found that actually atheists were even more likely to give answers that led to the conclusion than theists were. And surprisingly, they were all shocked. Oh my gosh, I didn't think it was necessary being, but actually the answers I gave led to that conclusion. So, uh, so that's, that's a really interesting book on one of those lines. Uh, Proust's Infinity Causation Paradox is an attempt to prove, it's built on the Prim Reaper stuff, which shows that, there's, that everything has to have a finite number of causes. So again, it forces you to, to a first cause. Uh, and then there's my work, um, the new Kalam argument in 2013, and then this Proust paper in 2020, with Proust and I wrote on the principles of reason and skepticism. So I, I'm sort of condensing that for you all tonight about you know, if you don't accept principles which should reason leads to God, you, you, you end up with a kind of global empirical skepticism, basically. Um, so let's see, anything else I should mention? I mean, that's pretty good. I mean, these are obviously heavy duty on the metaphysics side. Um, you should look at the um, uh, the two dozen or so arguments book by uh, Walls and um, uh, Walls and Dabber, yeah. Um, which goes through, you know, mentions consciousness, goes through like, And then, of course, our new classical theism. I've got, well, you should look at the, so the classical theism will come out in a couple weeks. My chapter, this chapter two, will be open access to, so you get a hold of that pretty easily. And uh, that, that's where I'm going to, I give the, uh, my versions of the first way, the new version of the first way. So I'd be happy with that, which is pretty good. Yeah. And uh, for reasons of time, that would help for our last question. Okay, very good. Well, thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.